Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Colts Cover 2 Podcast. I'm Joel A. Erickson. I'm joined as always by Nate Atkins. Uh, this week we did things a little bit differently. We had an event at the Indy Star where we had fans come in and ask us questions live and in person. Uh, the, the podcast will, will be part of that and part of what you normally hear from us. Um, but just uh, j- check it out, see how it worked. Um, just taking a look at what's going on with the Colts and what it looks like moving forward. Uh, for the game against the New England Patriots. Um, physically, not necessarily, I, I don't know that that necessarily affects any of his recovery or anything like that, but in terms of a natural time to come back, there's, there's the game in Germany, and then they have a bye week, and so I think it's natural to look at that and think, even if he is on the front end of it, may, maybe they end up holding off holding off and bringing him back until after the bye week, giving him that extra time to come back. Um, because obviously it's with a shoulder and with a quarterback and with, again, the history that this team has with shoulders and quarterbacks, uh, I wonder if they, they want to be careful. I, I know in the past, not in relation to this injury at all, um, but in, in relation to them looking at other quarterbacks, that that has been a factor for them is, hey, we don't want to mess with a shoulder. Uh, if we don't have to. So I wonder if they, I, I, w- I do wonder if it's going to be something where the team is maybe going to be extra cautious in terms of bringing him back. Yeah, these kind of things with a, with a player this important are collective decisions. So these are going to be things that Jim Mercy is going to weigh in on, that Chris Ballard is going to weigh in on. Obviously, the medical staff is giving their information and then the coaching staff. So they're going to have to all get on the same page with this. And that's where it's, 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 probably going to be a situation where they're all on board with bringing him back which which tends to lean toward you know being cautious with him and this is also to me why they signed Gardner Minshew was to not be in a spot where they felt like we have to throw him out there we just have to use the only guy we have they they very much believe in Gardner's ability to kind of steady things to run the offense that they have under Shane Steichen that he's played in for two years now uh, when he was with the Eagles and you know in, in, in a way to sort of still teach Anthony because the two of them are very, very close and, and kind of can speak the same language at this point. So uh, you got to think of all things that could be accomplished or not accomplished this season. The number one thing they can't do is kind of set Anthony back. And that can happen on the field with bad habits forming or that can happen with his health. So either way, I think that anything that risks uh, more injury or, or step backs in performance, I think they're going to try to avoid. I host the podcast, but this frequently happens where Nate brings up the next thing that I want to do and makes a natural transition. So that's what's going to happen here. Gardner Minshew obviously stepping in uh, as as the starting quarterback for at least the next four weeks. One of the things I thought was interesting this week, and I've already written about it, it's on IndyStar.com for those of you um, who haven't read it yet. But it's just a hint. It's not like Jim Bob Cooter took us through exactly the playbook. Um, As much as I would love him to do that, 
Uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime <laughs> soon with Shane Sykin at the helm. Um, he's very paranoid. He doesn't want us to know anything about the playbook. But uh, he said that in the offseason, the way they installed the offense was they essentially installed two offenses. And that the basics, uh, the base of, of both of them is the same. A lot of the plays are the same. But the way they call it, the way they run it, the stuff that Anthony Richardson likes and is good at, the stuff that Gardner Minshew likes and is good at are different. And what Jim Bob Cooter was saying was essentially what they did was they put in way more than you would normally, which I think the really interesting part about that is normally with a rookie quarterback, you're trying to limit what you're putting in in the install so he doesn't have to be you know, drowning in, in plays. But that's not what they did. They installed everything. If you remember right, for those of you who remember training camp, that Richardson was taking first team reps through all this, so he was going through all this. But they put in all of this stuff knowing that some of it was really for Minshew, some of it was for Richardson, and they just kind of pull it out whenever they need to. Now, obviously, they're going to be in the Minshew part of the playbook for a while here, but I think part of the reason that they've been successful with Richardson going down in two games, or really two games, I know he left the first one, but the, there were two games that he left early and there was a lot of game left, is, is they, the fact that they built that flexibility into the offense. I, I always wondered about that. I wondered if... Um, you know, you see it with other teams where you have a quarterback with one style and then another quarterback with a very different style, the sort of bumpy road offensively when they have a chain transition. They haven't had that here. I thought it was interesting to hear how a team prepares for that, prepares for a player. Minshew, obviously, just to highlight the differences, Minshew is not a runner, um, not in the way that – I know he had the, the really good spin move on Sunday. <laughs> which he apparently learned from Richardson. Uh, but he's not really a runner. He's working on it. He doesn't have the same arm strength. Um, he doesn't run all, quite some of the same stuff. Uh, he also is not as escapable in the pocket, which I think probably lends to them calling shorter, quicker stuff because they can't count on him to get out of it. Um, so that's, that's what the big difference is in, in terms of the, the, the baseline stuff. Again, I wish I could tell you more, but Jim Bob Cooter and Shane Steichen are not, not, they're not telling me that stuff. Yeah, I think the quarterback run is the huge uh, obvious element that's going to be different is that they're not going to design really any for for Gardner Minshew. Even they had an opportunity on Sunday to run the tush-push play. What, what about the spin move, though? The well, spin move was... He, he can campaign for it, <laughs> and he will. That's that's Gardner. He pushes buttons with Shane with that. But uh, they even aren't running that tush-push that play, uh, the, the QB sneak uh, with, with I prefer Gardner. brotherly shove. That's... that's yeah, that's that's a Philly. Well, I, I know it's a Philly thing, but they did come up with it. And tush push sounds, I don't know, borderline like it's creepy. Just, okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough respect for the play. <laughs> I, uh, it's it's the creepy part that gets me. I I don't think I would like writing it either. Like just just for for. People in attendance and podcast listeners out there, I, I'm probably not going to write tush push on a, on a story. I don't feel great about it. Yeah, that, that's fair. I'll so, I'll take any submissions for indie versions of it for whenever that's they the thing, do end up I, I need it. like, like a, I need like a local spin on that. So well, tush push is not local, unfortunately. I think no. that's very universal. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> That's the big difference. There won't be the quarterback run element to it. Um, and, and that matters, too, with, like, some of the design rollouts they would have Anthony do. That's not as much Gardner's strength as throwing on the move. Uh, but what's interesting is they do they have developed some different things with him and certain players. So, for example, like, one thing that's really helped them is that 
when they made the official announcement that Richardson would be the starter, you know, he obviously Minshew went to the second team. He worked early on with Josh Downs because that's where Josh Downs was at the time. And those two have all of a sudden built a very steady connection. And you've seen that uh, the last two games Gardner's played against Baltimore. Josh Downs had eight catches on uh, Sunday. Josh Downs had 97 yards, and it kind of was seamless between the two quarterbacks. And that's kind of the game that I think Gardner's going to fit best is those – the one area where he's he is advanced over Anthony at this point in time is his accuracy and ball placement outside the numbers, throwing east-west. So these crossing routes uh, just plays to get the ball in space. So I think there's going to be a little bit more yak opportunity that's not just based on play design. It's based more on ball placement so they can beat man coverage. You're going to see that with Josh Downs, I think, because they, they have a really nice connection. And then I think that can also work with Michael Pittman Jr. But this is where... They were just they were just trying to get past the short range passing. I feel like in that Rams game is when they finally opened that up, and they talked about wanting to that to be the start of something. So this came at a very unfortunate time because they were just trying to unload that uh, this past week, uh, and it just didn't end up going that way because Anthony went out and they're back in the spot. So the big question for them is how do they create those explosive down the field passes uh, without Anthony Richardson? That's where. I'm not sure quite where they're going to go yet. Uh, the one guy that's obviously built for that is Alec Pierce, who's out there right now. He's he's had a harder time getting going because they, they just haven't gotten fully there yet. So uh, that, I think, is going to be their biggest challenge is how do they get the ball down the field. Yeah, just, just to kind of back Nate up with the numbers here, the uh, in the Rams game, Anthony Richardson, his intended air yards was 12.4. His completed air yards average was 12.6. That was the longest uh, air yards – of any quarterback in the NFL that week. And it, it moved his averages. His averages early on were, were, lots, were a lot shorter. Minshew, on the other hand, is in the, however you want to look at this, the, the bottom 10. Um, sometimes this, it, I don't like bottom 10 as much because some teams are trying to throw short, so it's, it's a good thing for them. But he's in, the, he's in the, the shortest, 10 shortest quarterbacks in terms of intended air yards, completed air yards. I think that's one thing with downs. I think the volume of catches, same thing with Michael Pittman, the volume of catches may go up. I don't know if we're going to see like the 38-yard catch that Downs had the other day or the, you know, this, I think it was about 30 yards, the seed that he got over the middle uh, against the Rams. It's going to be harder for him to get those, not because of anything Downs does, but because the, the arm caliber, I, I, Gardner Minshew can't make that throw that happened against the, the Rams. Not, not in the same yeah, yeah. way, not in the same way. He has to throw that with more anticipation. So I think for down specifically, yardage-wise, tougher. But his anticipation sort of fits what Gardner Minshew is best at, which is understanding the defense, understanding leverage, throwing to it, um, figuring out where the defender is and throwing away from it. That's what Downs is good at, is recognizing those option routes. And so it probably helps him. It, it's, it's a passing game that's going to probably complete more passes but for shorter yards. And it will, it'll be interesting to see how that works. Because against Baltimore, just to remind everybody, that the, they completed a lot of passes, but the yardage was not sustainable over a full season. It was only 3.8 yards per drop back. That's, that's a bad number. They can't have that, especially these next couple of weeks as they face the Jaguars and then two really good defenses in Cleveland and New Orleans. Yeah, the one advantage that they have in an unfortunate situation is at least Gardner's going to get to stack multiple weeks together to build the chemistry with these receivers. Because one thing that's been hard so far is it's been very in and out. So, you know, Anthony, uh, you know, started the Texans game, went out, Gardner comes in. 
Uh, same thing this week against the Titans. They switched that way. So Josh Downs is the one guy that has built chemistry with Gardner Minshew, and the others are sort of trying to figure it out on the fly in the middle of a game. Now at least they have a month of practices and games where they're going to be able to build that stuff. And that may not sound like a lot, but you think of the lives some of these receivers have led, like Alec Pierce and Michael Pittman. Last year they didn't really get four straight weeks at the quarterback to build. They just kept switching and switching and switching. So they're still going to hope they hope there's going to be some of that this year because they hope that Anthony's going to come back. But over the next four to five weeks, that's where Alec Pierce and Michael Pittman Jr. are really going to just have to dial in with Gardner Minshew to build some more of what Josh Downs has. I don't think it's going to be the same because their role is very different where Minshew thrives on the kind of short uh, area of the field in the way that Downs settles, like you said. But those other guys in, in um, Kyle and Granson are going to have to – they're just going to have to build that. And I think as far as building the explosive plays, that's where I think the one thing that they do have coming in uh, that's building up to steam is Jonathan Taylor. And so I don't know if that's uh, – another way of predicting where we're going next or not, but I'm trying. Well, we, we've got, uh, for the, the, the people who are here in person, we've got uh, Bob Shear has just walked in, who's uh, been, been photographing the Colts for a lot longer than either of us have been covering it. And so what we're going to do here, I think, is transition out of the initial part of the podcast. We're going to get to some questions from you guys as soon as Bob's done talking. But, right, Bob, Bob's up next to talk about what he's seen covering the Colts over the years. <laughs> okay i think i think holly yeah so bob's up bob's bob's like bob's been doing this a lot longer than we have what's what's the official number bob uh, 25 years of colts football yeah. uh, i i got here in 18 uh 2018 and you got here 2021 in 2021 so uh you know bob bob's got a little bit more uh, his, his Colts historical knowledge than we do. We're going to bring him up, and you, you guys can ask some questions, and he'll he'll tell you what it's like photographing the Colts. All right. Okay. Hi, I guess I'm recording on a podcast. Hi, my name is Bob Shear, uh, Robert Shear. I'm one of uh, six photographers here at the Indianapolis Star. I'm a photojournalist, as you can tell. I've been covering the Colts for 25 years, I guess. So we've had, um, I've done three Super Bowls, the one here, the two in Miami, and a bunch of playoff games. And I'll tell you, the Peyton Manning era was amazing because I loved it, especially because I got to cover playoff games games which are really fun to do the food's better the hype's better um it's it's just a good time so plus we get to travel on the company they pay for a flight they put us in a hotel room and they buy us meals so i mean and you get to cover colts football which is pretty cool so i i'm going to show some tools of the trade this is not going to broadcast to the podcast audience but the general setup that I use to photograph games, same with all of our other photographers, I take one camera body with a 70 to 200 millimeter lens in it. I take, sorry, I'm a little disheveled. I just came from southern Indiana. I was traipsing around the woods all day. So I just got back and I've been eating a sandwich and trying to get my calories back. So everything's good. Um, 
a second camera body that I'll normally have a shorter lens on it. This is, what is this lens? This is a 24 to 70 millimeter lens. And I'll either put that lens on that camera or I'll put this big dude. And that's the one that y'all wanna see. This is the cool one. This is a 400 millimeter lens. Aperture is f 2.8. So these are very, very expensive lenses. I don't own this. The star owns it, and I check it out when I want to cover a game. So that's how it works. And I'll have this on this mono, monopod, so you know I don't have to handhold the sucker like I am doing now. And it goes on top that that camera, and that's that's what I use. So really, the nuts and bolts of covering a game is we work completely independently from the reporters. Um, they're up in the press box. They get a whole bird's eye view of the, of the game. We're normally on the field kneeling down. Some people stand. I like to kneel. The reason is you can get up under the helmets. Football is a game that's, that's played about three feet off the ground. Everyone's low. They get low. Of course, the players are jumping for balls, but most of it is down low. So we like to get super low because if you're above the helmets, you can't see the eyes. And when you have the eyes in the picture, the photo is so much nicer. And that's, and that's key. Faces are big for us. If we get a great play and everyone's looking away, the first thing we think is, oh, faces. We like to get those faces. So when I'm covering a game, I'm normally out there with one other person, sometimes two other people, sometimes by myself. But the main thing with pro football, Colts football, NFL football, is it's so much faster than the college game and so much faster than the high school game. It's, I mean, it's staggering how fast they move, how high they jump, how quickly everything happens. So there's kind of a rubric that we go through in our head. I'm thinking, okay, I'm on the 20-yard line, the Colts are at the 50. They're coming toward me. What's the set look like? How many wide receivers are in? Do they have a second back in? Is that going to be a blocking back in this play? Is it first and 10? Is it second and 10? Is it third and one? Okay, and I, and I think about all these types of scenarios for where I need to be, where I need to be concentrating, because basketball is, photographers love covering basketball. It's an easy sport to get a great picture because they score every, you know, 15 seconds. You know, there's a score or a great opportunity. They're right in front of you. You don't need big, exotic, expensive telephoto lenses like that. But football is far away and there's so few chances to score that we're, it's, it's, is it a lot of pressure? Absolutely, but it's, uh, it's pretty dang fun too when you get um, some good pictures, so how it used to be kind of for folks who were maybe photographers back in the day these cameras were not autofocus they're manually focused so you had to do this or do this however you you do it that's how i do the lens you do that you uh, and for the podcast crowd i'm taking my left hand and i'm and i'm rotating it and that's how you focus the lens and you would have to manually focus to keep up with the play or the ball or whatever but now these things it's kind of like i'm pretty bad at playing video games. I play Call of Duty, right? I'm terrible at it. But right now, shooting football, and I like, I like to say photographing instead of shooting. That's kind of an old word, so I'm going to transition to photographing. 
uh, football, it's a lot like playing video games. So these cameras are so high tech, the autofocus is so tack on and sharp that it's really much easier than it used to be, but there's increased pressure to get. You know, I used to get five really good in-focus photos for a game when I manually focused, but now you're expected to have dozens. Everything tack sharp, peak action, that kind of thing, so the pressure's different. So, yeah, that kind of sums it up. Bob, I'm curious, do you have a favorite shot that you've taken? Uh, or maybe favorite shot from a playoff game, a moment that these people might remember? You know, the, I think of, uh, and we just ran, the, I'm gonna take an easy answer, we just, what was the 20 year uh, anniversary of the game down in Tampa? the miracle comeback. And I was down there with a former colleague and good friend of mine, Matt Dietrich. We were down there covering that game. And that comeback during regulation, then the win in overtime with the uh, field goal, Mike Vanderjet, correct? Yes, mm -hmm. I was there, I should know this. Um, was, I mean, I'm looking at him, he's on the opposite side of the field. He's looking at me and we're just, we're doing this, we're shaking our heads, we can't believe this comeback. And you, you just get this, um, you know, maybe at that point in my career is a little more excitable than I am now, albeit a big giant game, and I'll check my pulse, and it's even, you know, I'm at a nice 70 beats a minute, which is where I usually am. And I've been doing this a while, so I kind of flatline, but 20 years ago, yeah, I was pretty excited <laughs> and pretty like, oh, oh my goodness, you know, where am I gonna go, that sort of thing. So, so the, the celebration photos from that game, um, which is a miracle comeback, a regular season game, um, definitely some of, my, some of my favorites, so. Hmm. Do you have any moments you wish you could go back and shoot again? You know, I, I don't, that's a great question. I don't because I'm very much a person who moves forward. I don't like to, Dang, my I'm friends, jealous of you. Yeah, I just, I just am. Like, I, I tend to listen to, I'm, I'm 54 years old, right? And I listen to new music. I don't listen to music I listened to in high school and in college. I'm kind of, people think I'm weird, but I, I just, I listen to all that stuff. I wanna hear some new stuff. So that's, that's kind of how I am mentally and I don't know I don't uh, you the thing is you in the newspaper business if you mess it up hopefully you don't mess it up too bad you get another chance to do it tomorrow or you get another chance to do it in the next game and I understand it's the Super Bowl maybe if you miss a key play but I know I'm gonna have uh, backup photographers because we've got a big staff at the Indy Star and I've got people to get my back and if we have to follow back on something there's Associated Press which has fantastic photographers and we're part of their, their system so we can poach their images if we need to. And uh, does anything change based on the venue of where you're shooting? And have you had any sort of memorable places you've shot a game? Yeah, um, so about venues, I've been to every single football city in the NFL except for I've not covered a game in Green Bay Curiously, I have not covered a game in Chicago. Um, and I've not, nope, I've done min Minnesota. I think those are the two. There might be a third I'm, I'm missing. And photographers, we, we think about, we're always thinking about, okay, what are the sight lines? 
what are okay can, here's here's a good example Kansas City um, I don't like covering a game at Kansas City be, not because of the fans the fans are great and I've got family there so I don't want to dog on the Chiefs but the sidelines are so close in that when you're photographing something especially across the field we we like to um, set up our camera if you're a photo bug you know what a 2.8 aperture does it tends to get the object in focus and things in front of it or behind it out of focus. So with Kansas City, because those um, stands and all that potential distracting stuff is so close in, um, it, the backgrounds can be pretty distracting at that at that venue. So for that reason, the, the, the fans are not set back like in a lot of stadiums. Also, the other places that have um, shadows that move across the field with these new modern stadiums I you know it's great to photograph in Lucas Oil Stadium but damn it when it's sunny and that roof is open the um, the shadows are hideous for photographers and the backgrounds can be hideous so you can get players in a shadow in a shaded situation in your foreground and you've got to make an exposure for the players not for the background and then the back of it is going to be in full sun it's bright, it's hot, and because there's that dark Colts blue, it's a dark color, so it, it tends to show up. You can't blow out your exposure and blow out the background all the time because there's a lot of darks in the background. So, and, and, and plus the tracks and the shadows. Anyways, it's, it's kind of a mess. Houston's also a mess, um, but then there's some stadiums that are beautiful and have nice clean sight lines so anyways that's what I think about that was way too long of an answer um, it's good I needed it, to. it took so. pressure off me so no complaints um, all right well thank yeah. you for coming up and sharing with us absolutely um, are we are we gonna Q&A at the end or yes we can restate it or Hi, I'm Holly from Indianapolis. Um, I, um, this might seem, I don't know, pretty basic, but you said that you work pretty independent. First off, how much does your gear weigh? And do your shoulders hurt all the time? Yeah, they do. So I've, um, I just took a six month sabbatical. So I've been off half of this year. Okay, so I covered my first game three, games two home games ago and the next day I, I call it photographer claw and that's when you're gripping a camera and holding on to it for a long period and the next two days my hand was just in pain I I hadn't I was not used to holding a camera so um, yeah that's that's I but whatever you know I, I do my stretches I work out I try to keep in decent shape um, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not digging ditches. Um, but you mentioned earlier that you work kind of independently from the reporter, like the print reporter. Obviously, you guys are both important journalists, part of the process to telling the story. Um, but for those of us who haven't covered a game before, um, for those of you guys listening and those of you guys here, I'm a public safety reporter typically, so I've never covered a football game. Um, but I've covered stuff that happens out and around the football stadium. Anyway, um, what? How does your day compare to Nate's day? Like Nate, how early are you getting there? Uh, so for a one o'clock game, I try to get there by usually by ten thirty or eleven. 
Um, pretty much, it, it depends on kind of what, like Joel tends to get there earlier because he's got some TV stuff. I'm not that cool, so I just show up uh, when I have to be there. Uh, and actives will come out, so, so an hour and a half before the game's really when the work for me starts. You're watching some players filter in and whatnot, but mostly we find out who's going to play an hour and a half before the game, and that's when we start getting locked in. And then you're pretty much there through, let's see, a 1 o'clock game will end at, uh, you know, 4.30. We get down for post-game press conference with the coach and quarterback. Then we go to the locker room and talk to as many players as we can talk to. Uh, we do some post-game video stuff. Then we go back upstairs and we write, and then we do one of these podcasts. So we usually get out of there, I think, around – usually by about 9 p.m. So for me, it's probably about a like a 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. day. That's a, that's a longer day than we have. I'll get there with uh, for a home game with Jenna Watson. Uh, what up, Jenna? She's the other uh, Colts team photographer on, on IndyStar. And, and if it's a home game, our uh, boss man, Max Gersh, will come and help edit. So we'll get there normally 1045-ish. We'll go right out to the field, see if anyone's stretching. Okay, this past week was all about Jonathan, right? Jonathan Taylor. So we're gonna go out, look for him, didn't show up. Um, so we'll hang out. One person will be on the field all the time waiting for him to come out. Um, he ended up coming out around noon, made some pictures. You duck back in, you either file them yourselves or you hand them to Max and he will file them. And then the rest of it is kind of, you, you get a meal, you sort of get it collected and you know, okay, this was the JT game, okay? So everything JT, we photographed. So every time we went on the field, we tried to get a nice clean action shot. And the, and the story is, does he play a lot? Does he play very little? Is he gonna get injured? Hopefully not, right? But um, I, I should also say this, our, our job as uh, photojournalists, just like the reporters who cover, is we're not, we're not fans. Today I'm wearing a blue shirt, but when I go to a game, whenever I cover a game, high school, eh, but, but a pro game, I wanna know what the team colors are. So if they're playing, um, you know, uh, Baltimore, right? I'm not gonna show up in a purple shirt or a blue shirt. I'm gonna wear something else. I wanna wear a color that's not of either two teams because my job is to photograph impartially. If the Colts have a great game and they're jumping around and getting excited, doing that sort of thing, I want great pictures of it. But if there's a horrible collapse and they lose miserably at the end, I need those pictures as well. So that's, that's really my job to photograph that the reporters are writing about those great, amazing, or tragic moments as well. Bob's, Bob's shirt, by the way, is, is more of a navy. I, I don't think it's, if, if, if your wardrobe is like mine and there's a lot of blue in it, you start doing shades more than you do anything else. Um, we're gonna get into the, uh, the quick Q&A portion here. So if you've got a question, and we'll, we'll keep Bob up there that way, just in okay. case there's a question for Bob. Um, but we're going we're gonna to get into the Q&A portion for the people who are here. Uh, and uh, yeah, here we go. How many... Uh, I do video for high school football, no big deal, but 21 years now. Um, how many video for the Colts instructional kind of... How many videos do they have going on any given game? Do you know? Well, we I, I let you answer that. You you would know more as far as um, the videos that 
you produce or, or Clark um, properly produces. But how many how many video people do you have working at the same time? Oh, one. Just just Clark. Clark, <laughs> Clark is our video guy. We have two for high school. <laughs> one in yeah. the whole field, and then I do what they would call tight. Um, he's he's fast. But but it's not. <laughs> But it's not game action video. That's the thing. For high school, you're doing game action stuff. For instructional for, purposes, yeah. But, but for this, it's not. It's, it's the reporters, it's the press conferences, it's um, the breakdown after the game where the reporters are talking about it. Um, a yeah. couple of Some locker features. room with players. Yeah. Okay. So action. teams might use the video from the TV folks for their instructional video. No? Yeah. You're talking about the game film for watching yeah. the tape the Colts yeah. have that in-house where we don't I don't know how many they use they the, but the, that's that's all done by the Colts in-house and it goes through an NFL uh filter so that the teams can have it too but yeah I, we we don't know where we don't really I mean I will say I know some of the Colts video guys but I, I have no idea what they're what they're like on game day no So uh, over the week, I saw that PFF had the Colts offensive line grade in the top five this season. So uh, just in your opinion, what has contributed to that change the most? Has it just been like scheme stuff or feel free to fill in the blank there? Uh, I, think, I think the biggest thing is uh, the development of Bernard Ryman. So last year, I think, the, I think the big mistake the Colts made last year was that they went with somebody who had essentially never played left tackle. He had one start at left tackle at Matt Pryor. Uh, and then at right guard, Danny Pinter, kind of in the same situation. He played guard, but not really in the NFL. And I think the thing that I underestimated and the Colts underestimated was how two weak links can make everybody else look worse. Because uh, they start trying. I think Quentin Nelson especially started trying to do too much um, because he knew that on his outside there were, there were issues. And that led to other mistakes. I, I felt like you could see it in the film a little bit. I, who knows? Quentin's not like great about expanding on that stuff. I felt like you could see him sometimes doing that. I think the fact that Ryman has been very good so far this season uh, gives you an anchor on that side. I think Will Fries has been pretty good too. And so I think you always talk about offensive lines like operating. I, I guess I always hear it as five is one, and it kind of sounds like a cliche. But like I think we saw it. I think we saw what happens if you have a really big drop off at a couple of positions. It kind of pulls a, the hole down. And then I think the other thing is just the new assistant coach, Tony Sperano Jr., has, has done a good job. Yeah, I think Tony Sperano Jr., to me, actually is the biggest difference because while Ryman, his strides have been great and very noticeable, he has missed the last two games. But we didn't notice that much this past week. We noticed against Aaron Donald because that, that to me was Aaron Donald. But overall, like it's just been very smooth from all five positions. And Tony Sperano Jr. came in here, and they, you just heard rave reviews from Shane Steichen, from the players uh, to, the, to the front office. So this guy just had a different sort of edge and a different way to sort of just kind of, on one hand, lighten the mood for everybody, but then get them to play five as one, just the, the kind of advanced levels that he teaches at. You know, his father, Tony Sperano Sr., is one of the greatest O-line coaches uh, ever and then was a head coach and so uh, Tony Sperano Jr. 
it, it, it's interesting. Like you have to kind of feel this out. But like he he came from the Giants, so for example, their offensive line has just cratered this season without him, and I don't think that's a total coincidence. And you talk to coaches who build their staffs, and they tell you the offensive line coach to them is the single most important uh, member of a staff because number one. Uh, it's it's such a hard position to fill. It's such technical work. It's not something that you can go it, it, hire someone who isn't really trained in that to then go learn it. Uh, but the the other thing is just like there's it's the most connective group where they say five is one because like the whole group can either lift each other up or they can bring each other down. So right now this, the the whole of this group's a lot better than the sum of the parts. And the parts are we're learning pretty good. I mean the parts have. A pro bowler in Quinton Nelson and, and Ryan Kelly has been that before and Braden Smith's solid player. We're seeing Bernard Ryman has some talent. And Will Fry's, you know, is 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 filling in capably, but they're still playing better than that. Their their quarterback hits are in the bottom five of the league, I believe, still. And obviously what they're doing in the run game is is phenomenal. And so they're just all lifting each other up where you're seeing Quinton Nelson get back to the road grading type of player he was. You see, obviously, what Ryman's doing. You're seeing Ryan Kelly really looks like the guy of old, for the most part, at least in the run game. And Braden Smith, you, know, you just don't notice a whole lot out of him in pass pro, which is kind of what he's always brought there. So I, I think the coaching change there and the way they've just really turned the page and let them kind of push last year into being last year has been pretty big for that group. Yeah, and then I have one more qu Oh, sorry. I can pass it off after, but... Um, Looking forward to free agency, who do you think is like the priority extension, maybe outside of Michael Pittman Jr., and when do you think something like that could happen? Do you think an extension for him is possible in season, or is that something they're going to wait till after the season on? So for Michael Pittman Jr., that's certainly where it, it shifts now that they've got Jonathan Taylor done. And looking at the way that they're built in the passing game, that's an extension that I think they, they have to try to make happen. They just haven't – there isn't another guy in the passing game that you can pass that torch to and feel like you have any confidence he'll be the number one. Uh, right now, you know, he's he's just been so consistent outside of one down game against, uh, against the Rams that it, he's sort of become that safety valve for Anthony Richardson. And so if that continues to be the case by the end of the year, it's going to be hard to let that thing go knowing that good receivers don't get to free agency to replace him with something more proven than that. Uh, I think it's going to be tough, though, because Michael Pittman Jr., very, you know, he grew up the son of an NFL running back. He very much knows the market he's in, and he's going to do what really good receivers are doing, which is get as much as you can, knowing if he goes to free agency in the spring that you know, there's going to be teams lining up. Christian Kirk, the deal he signed with the Jaguars a couple of years ago, that pretty much set the stage for you don't have to be necessarily a proven number one. You just have to be the best receiver on the market, and someone's going to sign you. So I fully expect them to make that a big priority. I think it will take until the spring because I think Michael Pittman feels like he hasn't played his best season yet. You know, he had the one 1,000-yard season with Carson Wentz, but only four touchdowns that year. And I, I think he believes this can be his best year. When you can put your best year out there and, sit, and, it's, and it's your most recent year, that's the best way to get paid. So that's the, the route I think he'll go. For a different play, play, for a different player, I think Grover Stewart. Um, you know, he's he's a nose tackle. He's he's been in the league a lot of years. But here's the thing: like, they let Danico Autry go, kind of because of his age. They kind of slow played that contract, um, and then let let the Titans get him. And he's been very very good in Tennessee, despite being in his 30s. Grover is so important to what they do defensively. Um, 
and there doesn't really seem to be any signs of a drop-off, at least to me right now. I don't think you have to sign him to like a, a super long-term deal, but uh, if it was me, I would lock up Grover Stewart. Now that the Colts are off to a three and two start, do you think Ballard and the front office are regretting their choices to not provide more depth in the secondary and offensive line? You, you are you're just just throwing me just fastballs down the middle. Like that's, <laughs> yes, I do think so. I, I especially, I think one thing that's gonna happen though, especially with the secondary, I do think it helps them that there's not a lot of great quarterbacks on the schedule, but some of these teams that they have coming up like the, the receivers worry me more than the quarterbacks. Like the Saints, I don't know if Derek Carr is is a, you know the kind of guy who's going to just tear you to pieces. But Chris Olave and Michael Thomas and Rashid Shahid—that's a really really good group of receivers. Um, teams like that, teams that have wide receivers like that, if they have plus if they have one more injury at corner, we're not even talking about rookies anymore. Then we're talking about bringing in Daryl Baker Jr. and guys off the street. I do think that that's probably something that's going to end up being a, a question. O-line depth, they, they handled Blake Freeland being in there last week. Um, but against the Rams, I, I did think you could see a little bit of, when they, when they were missing two of them, you could see a little bit of, of drop-off. So, yes, I, I do think that, that they, they might end up regretting that if, if it starts hurting them down the stretch. Yeah, I think the one thing that's interesting, I think they definitely regretted it while they saw what they had in Anthony Richardson. Of course, answering that in this moment is a little difficult because he's hurt right now, and we don't know. Maybe that will torpedo their season. Maybe it won't. Maybe they can keep it together. So if they can keep it together in a few weeks, they're definitely going to regret that because I think the thing that they're missing is they they realize they have a good enough team out there right now and good enough quarterback play from both guys to compete and, and be in these games and you know fight for the playoffs. But eventually, you have to take down top passing games, and those issues at cornerback, like the, it, it bites every single team in this league. And it's just you get to a certain point in the year where, if now they want to go out and fix that, that's pretty hard to do. There's nobody to sign uh, to come in and start at outside cornerback that you feel good about. They could try a trade. Um, that's obviously difficult now that they don't know how long their quarterback will be out for. So, I think. The answer to your question, I'd say, is yes, except the Anthony Richardson injury might push them back to where they thought initially they were going to be, which I, I think they never – I think they saw this as a developmental year all the way. I've got another one. Um, now that AR is officially out at least for four weeks, do you guys think Minshew will be – I'm sorry. Now that AR is officially out, at least for four weeks, do you guys think Minshew will be able to keep up his efficiency rate? I don't believe he'll be able to hold up through the entire term of AR's absence. I think one thing that's really interesting is when a guy has to go from being a backup who steps in and finishes the job to being the full-time starter. And that's the challenge that Gardner Minshew is going to face. And so what's happened for him against the Texans and the Titans finishing those wins and playing pretty well in them is that those defenses prepared all week for Anthony Richardson and the threat of him going deep and the threat of him running and holding the ball. And it's they were able to sub in that number two offense we talked about with Gardner Minshew. And it's something those defenses didn't prepare for. But now that he's the starter and they know it, and there's no questions about whether someone else is going to start. They're going to zero in on him. And he's got a good amount of tape out in this league. He's 
nine and sixteen as a starter. So there's enough of a book out there, especially in this scheme, that teams are going to be able to come back after him. And so in terms of efficiency, I think if you're talking completion percentage, I think they will find ways to make it safe enough to where he can keep that up. I think what's going to be harder is keeping up the yards per attempt. I think right now he's at about 6.8. It's about what his career is, but over time you're going to need some explosive passes to keep that number high uh, against Baltimore. That's the one game he started and everyone knew coming into the week he was going to start that. He was at like 3.8 yards an attempt. And I don't expect that to be the case, but I do think uh, for them to get explosive plays, it's going to have to come from the run game, and that's where I think the efficiency is going to drop a bit with the pass game. Typically with backup quarterbacks, like the sort of old NFL cliche is like you want somebody who's good for when they come in, but the more they play, the the more like the reason their backup quarterback is going to show up. And I think that that's generally how you look at it. I also I'm really circled that those Browns and Saints games. I think the Browns are first in defense right now, and the Saints are fourth. Um, and without having Richardson there. To, I think if you go back and watch Zach Moss's touchdown run, the, the big long one, the 56-yarder from the other day, I think if you watch the safeties, you can see them watching Richardson. And you're going to lose that with Minshew. So I think efficiency, just not just in the passing game, but in the run game, that some of the attention that Richardson draws is probably going to be lost too. Um, but I will say this, on, on Sunday, I, he did some things that I hadn't seen him do yet, and just in terms of getting away from the pass rush, throwing the ball downfield a little bit more. If he can keep that going, maybe. But th- those those defensive games, like against those two really good defenses, I think I've got those circled even more so than this Jaguars game. As okay, let's let's see where this Colts team really is with with Anthony Richardson out. There's a lot of talk lately about artificial turf, grass. Um, the players seem to want to go back to grass. Uh, I think the Colts right now have a very hard field, but they have plans too for another artificial that's softer, but would they consider, you think, delaying that? Because it seems to be really hitting the news that the players really want it, and when players really want something, uh, generally, you know, they get it. <laughs> um, what, what's your opinion uh, about that? I think my understanding of the way Lucas Oil is built um, and the lack of drainage underneath the field is that it be re- like you would have to do a massive overhaul. Uh, now I knew they brought in grass for. There's a part of this they brought in grass for a soccer match. Yeah, 2013. I, in 2013, and I, one of our questions was how difficult is it to do that? You know, eight or nine times a year. Um, everything I've read on the grass versus turf thing um, from people who you know, have studied injuries on it and stuff like that. It does seem like there is a pretty strong correlation between turf causing more. And the, the players have said, I think, you know, the Colts players have said that it's the lack of give. You, you don't have any give to it. And so all of that power you're going ends up reverberating up through your legs and eventually that ends up causing an issue. I, I don't know, though, if, especially in the NFL where they're changing turf, but but it seems like the league is pushing back and trying to say that the grass versus turf statistics are overblown and doing all this stuff. It feels like, in terms of prediction, that they're not going to make the move to grass. Now, I kind of think they should, um, 
especially just knowing that like in the Premier League in the, in England for soccer, like they, they really try to have grass as much as possible uh, for four player injuries. I just don't know if it's going to happen given what would have to happen to Lucas Oil to do it. Um, because I, th I, th I think if you were going to have a grass field all the time, I think they have to completely change the foundation. Yeah, I think the turf that they're moving to next March is sort of their half measure to address this. They're going to one that's more acceptable that, that that softens the landing a little bit but it's still field turf so um, they've been you know at the bottom of the league or, or I should say at the top of the league in terms of player injuries because of this so they're hoping that that new turf is going to help it out but to get it to the grass level does seem like there's a lot of hoops to go through as far as certainly to, to make it a full-time thing doesn't sound like that's how Lucas Oil is set up and I have been curious about is there a way to get grass in there is you know as expensive as it might be to do it, is there a way to do that? If there was, I think they'd have to consider that. And even if it's super expensive, because right now it's, it's become a big concern with Anthony Richardson. Um, he's the one who brought up that um, it's that his first knee injury, or it was mostly knee soreness, I guess, unofficial injury, but he said it's just everybody gets hurt on turf and you smack your knee on something hard that's gonna happen. And like to build an offense around a running quarterback on that turf for half your games, and then play a few more in road stadiums like Houston is a major concern. But I just don't know what their solution can be if it's just not, it's just hard to get the grass element in there with how many events they're trying to host in Lucas Oil, the amount of time and just the logistical nightmare of it in addition to the cost. So it feels like the turf they're bringing out in in the spring is at least a step in the right direction, but probably not a full on solution. With Jonathan Taylor back, uh how do you see their running game coming along with Moss and Taylor both? Well, the conversation certainly changing now that Anthony Richardson's not out there, right? So I think that uh, the idea of bringing him back was initially was to have a three-headed monster, and now it's down to, to two-headed monster. But I still think they're going to run the ball as much as they were going to run with Anthony because that's sort of a way to uh, – insulate a backup quarterback, make it so Gardner Minshew can be sort of the operator of an offense but not have to carry it along. And I also think that's, you know, Jonathan Taylor is the one answer, I think, to the question about explosive plays, is if they can get him back to the level he was at in 2021 when he won the rushing title, that's ex he was like an explosive run waiting to happen. So they're going to build him up to that level, but uh, it's, it's going to take a few weeks because he – went almost an entire year not even practicing football. So that's where Zach Moss just helps the role that he's on right now. They can add a bunch of carries to him and then sort of shift that workload to Jonathan Taylor. Um, but if I had to guess, once Taylor is back in sort of full football shape, I think he'll sort of double up Moss and carries, but there'll still be a team that tries to run the ball a lot. The stuff that Steichen is doing with the run game isn't necessarily what he did in Philadelphia. It looks like he found some stuff or, or decided that it fit the, the team better um, this year. And I, I think I'm interested to see how it changes with Minshew at quarterback when you don't have the threat of the quarterback run as much or really at all. Um, that's not me saying that. The, the coaches said that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I am interested to see, you know, if – having Taylor and Moss having two guys who can you know theoretically carry full workloads if they if they lean hard into the run going forward with without um without Richardson there just and lean hard into the running back run specifically it's not something that Steichen's done 
But I think that maybe with this team it calls for it. So uh, I'll be interested to see what happens in terms of if you wanted to, you could kind of go uh, – the Brown didn't the the Browns a couple of years ago with Hunt and Chubb ran it a ton right with two running backs. Oh yeah, yeah. They I'm wondering if they could do something like that, you know, where they're they're really really emphasizing the running backs. And that was the idea. That it's Nick Chubb and John Taylor are so similar because their contracts are basically the same. The idea was you'll make Nick Chubb's contract work because the Browns had Kareem Hunt to level that up. I think Zach Moss, at least for right now, he's in a contract year, so we'll see. But for right now, I think that fits with Jonathan Taylor. Another one. I think we have time for one more question if anybody wants to ask. Go for it. Yeah, I was wondering if you had any insight into how the Jonathan Taylor deal came together and why in the heck didn't they offer the deal during training camp? Because it seemed really similar to the Cleveland's deal with Chubb. Yeah, I, we don't have any necessarily inside behind the scenes information. I did try, I will say that. I did try to get, get some insight into why the team did what it did. Um, my, my best guess um, is that they did it because Richardson was better than they expected right away and the team was better than they expected right away. Um, because nothing else that they had talked about being a, an issue for him getting an extension changed. You know, they hadn't seen him in Steichen's offense yet. They still kind of really haven't, even after the game. Um, his, his ankle, he's, he's back for one game. He's not back for all of them. Um, the, they're, it's, they're, they're winning, but it's, it's just a little bit. Like, a lot of the stuff that they said, the passing game is still prevalent in the NFL. A lot of the stuff that Ursay and Ballard said as to why they were not going to offer a contract hasn't changed. The only thing that's changed is that I think the Colts are better than most people expected. Um, or at least they were, you know, who knows what's going to happen now that Richardson's down. But that that's just makes the most sense to me because it's, it's the one thing that changed. So I, that's the only thing that I, under, that I can think to think of that would make you change your stance. Because their stance was, and I know there's been some thing going, uh, some some thought going around that like there was a huge demand and he came down off of it. We we actually don't like what what we have from the Colts is they were not going to offer him an extension until after the season. Ballard was still saying that as of the end of training camp, and then obviously, like you said, they they come in with a deal that's I think to most people seem pretty reasonable. I do think Anthony's uh, play had a factor in why they maybe felt like this was the time to do it. But I also think that it's just a simple matter of deadlines force actions sometimes. And so, you know, they got to a point where they put Jonathan Taylor on the pup list instead of trading him to head into the season. So he's out four weeks. And the idea of that was a four-week window for Chris Ballard to settle this down. And he came out and talked about – repairing the relationship and they've got to find a way and but we asked him point up point blank how are you going to do this without a contract and he said i don't know yet and so he had four weeks to try and figure out what that was and i think they got to the end of it and realized that is the only way it was either a contract or a trade uh or jonathan taylor was probably going to come back because he needed to in order to to find a way to get you know in a, to make this year count for free agency but the relationship was just going to stay strained because the, the trust had just sort of disappeared on the two sides as far as how, like, basically Jonathan Taylor's in a spot where uh, he wants guarantees in order to step on the field and not risk injury. The Colts, of course, wanted to see that player, see that play out, and wait until after the year to see if he gets through the year all healthy. The, that was the whole divide that they had when they went on that luxury bus in training camp 
And basically two months happened after that bus meeting that didn't resolve any of that. And so they realized, I think at a certain point, for the sake of this team that's in a position to fight for the playoffs with a rookie quarterback and a rookie head coach, to sort of clear the air on this and get any certainty on the availability of their running back and uh, not let this affect the locker room and the team, they're either going to need to trade Jonathan Taylor or sign him. And that's where I think deciding between those two angles, based on what they had in Anthony Richardson, it made a lot more sense to sign this running back and give him support and let this backfield build. Unfortunately, they have the injury with AR now, but I, it's still a situation where, where Richardson can come back and they can kind of let that play out. I, I, I do agree with you, though. It is puzzling because it does feel like you could have given this deal three months ago and we could have avoided a lot of heartache and a lot of late nights for me specifically. A lot of late night writing for me specifically. And with that, I think we're good. So that has been a live edition of the Colts Cover 2 podcast. I'm Joel A. Erickson. This is Nate Atkins. We will be back with a first impressions pod after the Colts play in Jacksonville. I, I cannot get through a pod, by the way, where they're about to go to Jacksonville without saying, Jacksonville's terrible. I don't like going there. You're just out here making enemies everywhere. I, I've, I, this is a, a long-running thing on the pod, Holly. You have no idea. I don't like going. And this year, I can't get out the night of the game. So my, my first impressions pod will probably be a little spicier because I'll still be in Jacksonville as opposed to in an airport. Well, I'm looking forward to the game. Nate, Nate's fine with Jacksonville. I'm not. Anyway, for the Colts Cover 2 podcast, I'm Joel A. Erickson. This is Nate Atkins. Thoughts and prayers to me for having to spend more than 24 hours in Jacksonville this, uh, this weekend. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.